Well, good morning. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 21. This is where we will uh, pick up this morning in our study of this letter from Paul. As you're turning there, uh, and, and as we read here in just a moment, if you've been with us through this study and then you hear what we're about to read, you may get the sense that Paul is starting now to draw his argument, the argument section of this letter, which is a big piece of it, he's starting to draw this toward a particular point, a very sharp point. Uh, it, we have been on quite a ride for the past several months walking through uh, what Paul is doing in writing to these beloved Galatians. He has been hard at work uh, to persuade them, to remind them. And we've seen him do a number of things. We've seen him explain the progression of the biblical covenants to them, which many even to this day think of as one of the most uh, difficult things to seek to do, to lay out those truths um, right out there in front to be, to be easily seen and recognized. He's worked to do that for them. Uh, he's reminded them of, of their own conversion. You remember in chapter 3, as he spoke to them about the fact that when they received the Spirit, God gave them the Spirit as a result of their hearing with faith and not through performing certain works. We saw that in Galatians 3, 2. Um, he's made abundantly clear to them the temporary nature of the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant that they are being tempted to come back to and be, to begin to, uh, to approach God by means of. How often has, have we heard him speak about the fact that that was a temporary covenant? Uh, and last week, we even saw him get sort of face-to-face -face with them. We saw Paul force these Galatians to look him in the eyes as he reminded them of his love for them that has been steadfast from the beginning of their time with him as he reminded them of their blessedness uh, that they had in their life with Paul, uh, holding fast to the, tr to the true and pure gospel. He reminded them of the blessedness of that, uh, that, that state of their existence before the Judaizers arrived on the scene and began to confuse them. This morning, Paul does something yet again in service to this, this whole trajectory he's been uh, driving at with the Galatians. In one sense, it's not, uh, it's not different than the main themes of the letter, uh, but he does it again this morning, just like he did last week. Last week was very unique uh, in terms of the tone, in terms of the sorts of things he was asking them to think about. It will be that way again uh, this morning, and you'll tell that as we read. And what we're going to do here this morning is we're going to work, first of all, to clearly understand dichotomy that Paul is setting up here. He's going to give us a picture. He's going to tell us that redemptive history has given us a picture with two sides to it, two players in this picture. So we're going to work first to clearly understand uh, the nature of this picture. Who are these two players in the equation that he is uh, asking us to consider um, and then secondly, we're going to draw out the point that he is seeking to make by, by directing us to this picture. And here's what we're going to see. We're going to see from Paul that even in Old Testament times, all throughout God's work with his people, God has been demonstrating for those with eyes to see 
God has been demonstrating the necessity of relying on his promises and not on our own efforts. That is to say this, God has always been a God, the Almighty One, the Righteous One, who is only approached, who only is gained access to by means of his own promises that he would give and ask us to believe. And as we look back and see his interactions with his people, we find this is always the picture he's, he's uh, portrayed of himself. We're going to read this morning Galatians 4.21 to 5.1. Chapter 5, verse 1 is very much a transition. I think we'll look at it uh, this morning in the context of the end of chapter 4, and then again next week as we start off chapter 5, because it does a very good job of drawing what he said here to a close and then bringing us into the next chapter. Uh, if you're able, please stand with me this morning as we read. I'll read from the English Standard Version. <clears throat> Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 21. Paul continues in this way. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. You can see here in our having read this passage that it all centers around two uh, pictures that, that Paul is uh, asking us to consider side by side. So let's begin in that way. Uh, who are the two players involved in this equation? We see in verse 22 that the story is centering around two sons of Abraham. You see that there, verse 22? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. So the two pictures are of a woman and her child and another woman and her child. Uh, the first thing we have to do is identify who these two groups are, and Paul does not make that hard for us to do. Uh, the slave woman, we'll start with her. We can identify her with the help of verse 24. 
Who is the slave woman here? Verse 24 says, she is Hagar. If we know who the woman is, then we know who her son is. Who was the son of Hagar? That's right. And, and your mind is now going back to the right setting. You're thinking of Abraham and the beginning of the promises that God made through him. Uh, if the woman is Hagar, then her son is Ishmael. If Hagar and Ishmael in this picture as the slave woman and her son. Now, in the biblical narrative, who are the counterparts to Hagar and Ishmael? Well, this is the counterpart to Hagar is going to be whoever this free woman is in verse 22. And it's, it's interesting to note uh, and easy to see here, Paul is much more interested, much more focused, can tell, on the slave woman than the free woman. There's much more said here about the slave woman and her son than there is about the free. But we would expect the counterpart to Hagar and Ishmael to be Sarah and Isaac, right? And we would be right in that. We can tell that that's where Paul's directing us in spite of the fact that Sarah is not even mentioned by name here. He doesn't mention Sarah. And I think that's going to be important because it helps us to remember what's being emphasized here is not really so much the actual identities of these two women so much as their respective statuses and what it is we're learning about the ways of God by seeing how God has interacted through them. So it's their realities as slave and free that he's emphasizing here. Not so much their names, but this, the fact that one of them was a slave and one of them was not. So let's keep drawing out the details that Paul gives us here. We're starting this morning sort of on a fact-finding uh, expedition in the text. And we're going to gather these and organize them. And then we'll think about what it is that he's telling us from this. So we've learned so far about the slave woman that this is Hagar and her son Ishmael. And here is where things get really unexpected. This is where things would, would be very surprising to the uh, original hearers of this letter, what Paul is going to do here. And it should be surprising to us as well. Uh, what else does he tell us about the slave woman? Well, there are three things. One of them is in verse 24. Look there. Paul writes, now this may be interpreted allegorically. We'll talk about that later. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. And stop there. So Hagar, in this allegory, as Paul uh, speaks of it, we'll see here later, he's not using that word in the way that we usually think of the word allegory, but we'll, we'll just call it that for now. In this picture, in this allegory, Hagar, notice, is connected to the covenant made at Mount Sinai. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai. She is Hagar. So she's connected to the covenant made at Sinai, and of her children, it says, she bears children for slavery. Now, to me, the word for there is a bit confusing. What does it mean she bears children for slavery? Like she wanted to create slaves, and this is her, it's not speaking about her intention. It's just speaking about the result of a slave having a child. If you're a slave and you have a child, that child is a slave. So other translations, I think, make it more clear. The New American Standard Bible says she bears children who are to be slaves. And the Holman Christian Standard Bible translates it very simply. She bears children into slavery. That's the idea. If she is a slave, 
and you are her child, then when you were born, you were born into a life of slavery because this is the status of your mother. Now, let me just ask you quickly, does it surprise you to see Hagar and Ishmael as those connected to the Mosaic Covenant at Sinai? It's that connection that is a little bit shocking for us to hear. Hagar and Ishmael, they, they go off and he, be, he starts his own uh, nation long before the children of, uh, that arrive at, at Mount Sinai. This would have given uh, a bit of a surprise to any of the original hearers who knew this storyline well for Paul to draw this connection between Hagar and Ishmael and the Sinaitic covenant. But that's one thing that we see first here about the slave woman in verse 24. She is identified with the covenant made at Mount Sinai. In verse 25, we see the second thing that's said about this slave woman. Verse 25, now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. So the first connection in 24 was between Hagar and Mount Sinai and that covenant. Uh, he repeats that again here, but the second connection in 25 is between Hagar and the present Jerusalem. See that connection that's made? Hagar and the present Jerusalem. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. Now that present Jerusalem is about, in the next verse, it's about to be contrasted with the Jerusalem above. And you can tell what Paul's point is by how he phrases this. You notice what he says, she corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. That's how the correspondence is there. He's just reiterating what he said back in verse 5 of this chapter, that those under the law were in need of redemption. The present Jerusalem, representing the unbelieving Jewish religion, is trapped in slavery. Slavery to the, elementary, the elemental principles of the world and thus still in their sins. Still in need of rescue from slavery. But let me say here, and this is a little bit of, a, of foreshadowing of what we're going to see later, you, it's important that we notice that she and her children are in slavery even though they have a physical connection to Abraham. You notice that? Verse 22, Abraham had two sons. And this is the situation ongoing as to one of these sons. The physical connection with Abraham then did not save them from the status of slavery any more than it saved Ishmael and Hagar from the status of slavery. Now the third thing that we see about this slave woman we find in verse 27. So let's read that, but let's start in verse 26 because that's how we can make the right distinction here. At verse 26 we read this, but the Jerusalem above, there's the contrast, but the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. He appeals here to Isaiah 54, verse 1, to bear out from the Old Testament this dichotomy that he's holding forth here. We've had the slave woman and the free woman. He's told us now, the free woman, Jerusalem above, she is our mother. And then he comes to Isaiah 54. Now we'll go there in just a moment and see some things, but let's notice 
what we see here about the slave woman, do you notice that in this Isaiah reference, the slave woman is the one spoken of as having a husband? Do you see that? This is cause for the children of the Jerusalem above to, uh, to celebrate because she is our mother. And what he quotes is, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Why should she rejoice? Because the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. The negative situation there is of the one who has a husband. It's the barren one who, who has cause to rejoice. So the slave woman in that illusion, the Old Testament illusion, she's the one who has a husband. It's an interesting way to describe her, isn't it? Because in the uh, reference to, to Sarah and Hagar, both of them were married. Both of them had a husband. Remember Genesis 16, 3, Sarai brought Hagar and gave her to Abram as his wife. In terms of how Paul is using this quote, we don't need to make much of the having a husband part. They both had a husband in that technical sense. The point is one of them was barren and one of them was not. And we'll go to Isaiah 54 here a little bit later this morning. But what we need to see at this point before we start to look at the free woman in this allegory is this. Paul is making the point that the present Jerusalem is not the place it's not the means by which God's promise of fruitfulness and global blessing that he gave to our father Abraham, right? The present Jerusalem is not the place where those blessings are going to come. That situation of the present Jerusalem is now well pictured by Hagar and her son, the slaves who are born into a life of slavery. Abrahamic fulfillment is going to come through children born by promise, in other words. Now let's turn and look for a moment at the free woman here in these verses. Again, verse 22, it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. Let's look at that free woman for a couple of minutes here. We, we've already seen that the historical person in the picture is Sarah and her son Isaac. And what Paul's directing our attention to about Sarah here, we find at the end of verse 23. The son of the free woman was born through promise. This is the main uh, focus of our attention. In verse 27, she is the barren one and the desolate one who has more children than the other. And in verse 28, her son Isaac is called a child of promise. And that is the point that Paul is driving at here. Her child, the one through whom the messianic promises came, how did that child come? To borrow, and the analogy does break down here because this was, Isaac was born, uh, literally born, physically, but you could in a sense borrow from John 1.13. How, uh, how did Isaac come in a, in, a, in a big picture sense? Well, you could say in a sense he was born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It was God's promise that produced that offspring, wasn't it? You remember why he was named Isaac to begin with. A name that means laughter, of course, right? Why was he named that? Well, it's because when God promised his birth in Genesis 18, his mother, Sarah, laughed at the notion. 
So obviously impossible was this. Barren all her life, now many decades beyond childbearing age, as is uh, her husband, and a year later, the baby is in her arms. This is the child of promise, very properly so-called. The last thing for us to hear here, and again, we're, this is just the end of us on the fact-finding mission. We're just gathering what Paul's telling us about the slave woman and her son and the free uh, before we put them together. The last thing to hear about Sarah here, about the free woman, is in verse 26. It says, but the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Sarah here represents what is called the Jerusalem above, which is a really important theme in the Bible. And we were blessed this weekend even to sing a song about this future hope uh, that we are waiting for in the coming of Jerusalem above. Jerusalem above is the heavenly city. Revelation 3.12 says, The new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from God. It is a theme that is not unknown to us in our study of the book of Galatians, isn't it? This is the realization of the age that is to come, that has been inaugurated, but in an already not yet way. We still must live our lives out in this present evil age, even as we're living lives of the age to come. But there's coming a day when the Jerusalem from above, the heavenly city will come, God will dwell with man, and the scriptures will be fulfilled which declare the dwelling place of God is now with man. This is the coming of the age that is to come. It's the coming of the kingdom of God. And she, Paul says, is our mother. The Christian community uh, of all tongues and tribes and nations has Sarah as its mother. We have Jerusalem not the present Jerusalem, but the Jerusalem above as our home. And that re- leads to a really central question we have to consider this morning, and that is, how on earth could that be? How could we properly say that? How could we say legitimately um, that Sarah is our mother? And there are just two things left this morning that I want us to give our time to as we're thinking about the point Paul is making in drawing out this picture from redemptive his, uh, history. The first one is, I want us to see the significance behind Sarah being a representative of the barren woman in Isaiah 54. And really, I mean, in part for us to just appreciate the significance of the whole theme of barrenness in Scripture. In fact, we could just start there. Is Sarah the only Example in the biblical storyline of a barren woman and her barrenness being something significant in what God is doing with his people? Is that, the, is, that a, is that an outlier in the story of God's working through his people? Well, by no means is it. I mean, this is a theme that we find over and over again. Sarah, Abraham's wife, was barren. Genesis 16, 1. But then Rebekah, Isaac's wife, was barren, Genesis 25, 21. Rachel, Jacob's wife, barren, Genesis 29, 31. Samson's mother, who is unnamed in Scripture, barren, Judges 13, 2. Hannah, 
Samuel's mother, barren. 1 Samuel 1, 2. Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, barren. Luke 1, 7. All of them incredibly significant women in the development of redemptive history and in the ongoing progress of the seed of the woman from Genesis. All of them barren and all of them given miraculous conception. Have you ever wondered why it is that, that God would do this? Is it just a thing he likes to do for no wider purpose than the immediate picture? It, is, there no, um, is there no intentional picture God is working to create for us by doing this over and over and over again through the working with his people? Is there no theme here? I like that word for it. What is the theme that we're being given that was so important as to drive us through the entire Old Testament account and into the New Testament leading all the way up to the arrival of our Lord and Savior? So there's this theme of barrenness and then being given a promise that then reverses this barrenness. Let's put another theme on the table that I think belongs side by side with it. And it's the theme of the older serving the younger. Children born, often in those very situations, where we wind up seeing this thing happen on, on several occasions. The uh, older is made to serve the younger. So Ishmael and Isaac, there's this case there. Esau and Jacob, there's this case of the younger winding up having a dominance. Eleven sons of Jacob and Joseph, by the time that's done, they're bowing down to him. So you have this uh, constantly in God's dealings with his people, this you have promised offspring coming not by means of human effort, but by God's gracious promise. And you have stories of two sons where the younger becomes the prominent one and where the younger finds the blessing. Did you know that those two ideas converge in Romans chapter 9? Paul raises the two of them in tandem together. Look there with me for just a moment. Romans 9, 6. I'll read a few verses here. If you were to let your eyes look at the first five verses there, you would see the context that he's talking about the, the state of present Jerusalem. It's not a good state. He picks this up in verse 6. Listen for those two themes we've been describing. Romans 9, 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And stop there. What you need to see especially is what he said in verse 8. 
Because Paul is interpreting for us the intended object lesson of these patterns in God's interactions with his people. Verse 8 said, This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Paul is having to bang this drum to many different peoples as he's writing out throughout uh, the world that he's writing into. And here in our context with Galatians, it's as if he's shouting to them, brothers and sisters, the Mosaic covenant at Sinai was a physical covenant for a physical people. It most certainly revealed the character and nature of God. The laws of the covenant exemplify the eternal law of God, which itself is simply a reflection of his nature, of his character. That old covenant uh, contained promises and messianic illustrations and illusions. We've said it before, it was pregnant with the new covenant. But that old covenant marked out the children of the flesh. It created a pedagogy, remember that word from several weeks ago, that did not bring receipt of the inheritance. That's his point at the end of chapter 3. But rather protected the physical line until the promised seed came. Galatians 3, 19. It served its purpose. But true sonship, the sonship that matters in terms of God's promised inheritance, it comes to the children of the promise. And so we find, you don't have to turn back here yet, I'll bring you somewhere else first, but we find in verse 28 of our passage this morning, you, like Isaac, are children of promise. Now before we go back to chapter 4 of Galatians, let me ask you to turn to the book of Isaiah, and we'll find the place that he quotes in verse 27 of our text this morning. It's the very opening verses of Isaiah 54. So you're finding Isaiah 54... If you've turned there, your eye may be noticing what is standing directly on top of that. It's the famous promises concerning the Messiah, the suffering servant, at the end of Isaiah 53. Would you look there with me for just a second first? Isaiah 53, 10. Verses 10 and 11. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. This is speaking of the Father in reference to his Son. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. What does verse 10 say about our Lord? He will be crushed, he will be put to grief, but when he makes an offering for guilt, you see what it says about him, he shall see his offspring. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And who are his offspring? According to that verse 11, those whom he has made to be accounted righteous, those whose iniquities he has borne in his person. Now, we're not accustomed to that picture, I don't think, of our relationship to Christ. We generally, when we think of the relationship between Christ and his people, if we're thinking corporately, we think in terms of husband to bride, 
church is the bride of Christ. Maybe individually we think more in terms of the picture of elder brother to us, but here the picture used is one of offspring. This suffering servant will see his offspring. He shall see and be satisfied. How could there be offspring? Jesus never married. Jesus never had any children. How could there be offspring? There are offspring because we're not talking about children of flesh. We're talking about children of promise. They are offspring by virtue of their faith and the promise of the coming Messiah. Their union with him in his death and in his resurrection. The only offspring that belong to God are those who belong, in other words, get this, by adoption. The only offspring that belong to God are those who belong to him by virtue of adoption. Would you say adoption is a rather significant theme as the New Testament lays out to us the work that Christ has done on behalf of his people? John 1.12, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I remember hearing the, I think now, legendary uh, church historian John Hanna say once, God has children, he does not have grandchildren. It's such a good picture, it has always stuck with me. Nobody comes into his family through physical relationship. So, Galatians, if you think that that covenant that marked off the physical people carries some requirement as to your possession of God's promises, you've misunderstood everything. Now we're ready to hear what God says next through the prophet Isaiah. Look at chapter 54, verse 1. This is where Paul began his quotation for us in our text. It's in the context of what we just saw at the end of 53 that God shouts out in this way, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Why the cause for singing? Because though she has never been in physical labor, The offspring of the barren one will be many. How many? Count the stars in the sky if you can. That's how many. This is the promise. This is what Paul's been trying to show them the entire time in this letter. This is the promise that God gave to Abraham and to his seed, who is Christ. Now, make your way back to Galatians 4. We'll be here the rest of our time. Find verse 28. He brings it home to them here. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. You remember what happened with Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael persecuted Isaac. There was a, uh, an, an animosity there such that finally Sarah came to Abraham and said, you've got to get rid of them. 
There was this active opposition happening. And do you see Paul's point here? What's happening today with these Galatians? What's happening with this Jewish pressure put, along, put, put onto these Galatians to conform to their way of living, to their practices? Paul says it's the same thing that has always happened to the children of promise. The children of the flesh have always persecuted the children of the promise. Just as at that time, so also it is now, he says. And in verse 30, then, we get the gut punch to the Judaizing element among them. Verse 30, but what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. I mean, this is what he has been driving at since verse 21 this morning. Do you listen to the law? You who want to be under the law, do you listen to what the law says? So now he's speaking of law in terms of the, of, of the Old Testament here, in terms of the, the, the law, the prophets, and the writings. Do you, have you listened to what God recorded in his scripture? Do you listen to the law? Well, then do what your father Abraham was commanded to do back in the book of the law. Cast out the slave woman and her son. His concluding statement we find in chapter 5, verse 1. I mentioned that this is a transitional statement here. Listen to how this adds to this conclusion he's drawing here for them. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Much of the realities that he speaks of here are things that we have been talking about for weeks now, but I do want to highlight especially this morning the end of that statement. He says to them here, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. We talked about this last week. What is it that they are being pressured to submit to in their context? This is how Paul now thinks of the law covenant which was characterized by its law-keeping, by the requirement of perfect obedience to all that it commanded. It's exactly what Peter called it as well. Listen to Acts 15.10. Peter is speaking. They're trying to wrestle with this Jew-Gentile issue. And Peter says this, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. It's a yoke of slavery. Peter acknowledges, our fathers have never been able to bear this yoke. Not in the sense that they're speaking of here. Pursue righteousness by means of this? This is unbearable. We've never been able to bear it. You would put that upon the the necks of these Gentile converts now? By contrast... We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Now, I want us to think in particular here, as we're we're moving toward the end of our time, I want us to think about what this says to us and what we ought to do with this, with this picture of these two women representing two covenants. In one sense, this this is not necessarily what we might normally think of as an application of a text of scripture. It is application, but not the sort that I think we tend to move to most often. 
Uh, Look again at verse 24. We passed over this. Here's how he portrays what he's doing here. He says, now this may be interpreted allegorically. We really can't hardly avoid translating this as uh, allegorically because he is using the word that we literally get our word allegory from. He uses the word allegoreo. We just transliterate it right over in English. So it's hard not to translate this as allegory. The problem is, by our day and age, allegory means something very specific um, that is not the same point that he is making here. So for just I thought Sproul put this very simply. R.C. Sproul wrote this, Paul is not speaking of an allegory as we understand the term today. For his use of the imagery is not disconnected from the original context and events that he describes. That is very important to understand. Paul is not misusing these situations and this part of history that he is going back and pointing our attention to here. He's speaking about a reality that was present then. When Sproul speaks like that, I think is exactly right. What I hope we've seen this morning, and I mean as we have noticed, for example, the repetitive nature of some of these situations that God keeps bringing over and over again. I hope that what we've seen is that Paul, in presenting his argument to us through, through the lens of these two pictures, that he's tapping into a theme that God has woven intentionally throughout his story. And Paul's doing that in order to declare the purpose behind God's working in this way. In choosing to create, God has told a story that at its core has the aim of his glory, the sufficiency of him, the necessity of him, the beauty of his son, his graciousness shown in his willingness to redeem enemies, in fact, to bring them into his very household, (laughs) But, but such his great height that no one reaches that height but by one way, by faith in his sure promises, which were brought to fruition only in his only begotten son. This has been God's intention from the beginning behind the very act to create in the first place. It was to tell the story of his greatness, of his height, of the beauty of his son. The application of Paul's recounting this story then is to marvel at the fact that all of reality is in one sense, I'll use the word again here loosely, all of reality is in one sense one big allegory of God's greatness. And if that's the case, then what Paul Tripp once said is true. You are a character in a story whose main character must never be you. You live to proclaim this same grand narrative. Your very existence serves this purpose. Paul had put it well already in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. 
our purpose gets very clear for us to see then. We are to, in our thinking, in our speaking, in our acting, in our relationships, all of our relationships, we are to serve as this picture of the greatness of God, the wisdom of his commands, the surety of his promises. We live by faith in the Son of God. Does that mean that how we live in terms of our actions then is irrelevant now? Well, not at all. And we have before us in this letter two entire chapters nearly of fleshing out the daily implications of these realities. And what we're going to see in those chapters is that I am united to Christ by the gift of faith by which I rest on God's promises and on Christ's finished work. But when I am united to Christ, I become a co-heir with Christ. Have we seen him declare that already in this letter? A co-heir a recipient of the inheritance. And what is the inheritance that I receive immediately? The indwelling of the Holy Spirit who dwells in me and sets about to change me, to conform me into the image of Christ. And while we are all given that spirit by measure, which means the output of that does not always look the same, his work in his people will be inevitable. That reality of the indicative is what is the force behind the commands that we will find as we go forward. That's where we're headed in the weeks to come. So let me end then this morning by asking a question that we have asked before in our time here in Galatians. If all of this is true, how are you choosing to measure the blessedness of your life as you walk through it today? Are you defining blessing in the way that the world defines blessing? Are you gauging the state of your blessedness based on something like comfort level or temporal security and satisfaction? Or have you come to see that you are blessed to the extent, number one, that you are forgiven? And number two, to the extent that God then is fulfilling his promises to work through your circumstances, to teach you to rely upon him and to find your rest and satisfaction in him. If we define our blessings according to this world, my friends, we are sure to wither and wilt under the pressures of this world. But if we define our blessedness according to our union with Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God, then we will indeed, as he put it here in verse 1 of chapter 5, we will indeed stand firm as free men and women because Christ has set us free from this present evil age. Would you pray with me? Father, we again approach your throne of grace with great humility and gratitude this morning because again today, again this week, uh, we have sought you in your word, and you have not hidden yourself from us. You have been pleased to open to us the beauty, the truths, the food for our souls that is your word. God, thank you for it. We pray that you would help us. You would lead us to, to receive it faithfully, to hold it 
for the uh, life-giving nature of the thing. Lord, help us to meditate upon your word, to feast upon it. And in particular this morning, we give you thanks that we, because of the work of another, doing what we could never do, because of the work of your son, we are not children of the slave woman. We are children of promise. Because your promises are yes and amen in Jesus. Lord, thank you for your promise that none who come to you by means of the blood of your son are ever turned away. Help us, Lord, this day to be well-grounded yet again in the hope of the gospel, which is the only hope for sinners. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.